Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via our YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high-performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6pm where I debrief the recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favourite podcast app. Hi, I'm your host, Chat McLean. Today, my guest is Tim McGrath, the founder of Pitch Ready a sports and exercise physiotherapist with over 15 years of full-time experience in professional sport and nearly 20 years in clinical practice. Tim completed his PhD from the Research Institute of Sports and Exercise at the University of Canberra on the topic of ACL rehabilitation and return to sport following knee injury in 2016. He's a clinical and research director of US, UK and Australian-based company Pitch Ready which focuses on blending clinical insights with data science, squad-based injury prevention strategies, and return to sports testing following lower limb injury. He regularly conducts clinical consultancy to professional sporting teams and second opinions for complex cases following lower limb injury. Since 2004, Tim has worked in the clinical appointments with professional sporting teams across multiple codes, including the St. George Illawarra Dragons, Port Adelaide Football Club, Australian Men's Rugby Sevens Team, Brumby Super Rugby Team, South Sharks Rugby and Canberra Raiders. Highlights from this episode, we discuss what it takes to develop a correct diagnosis, movement skills athletes can develop to reduce the likelihood of injury, importance of horizontal programming over a vertical model, how your biggest learnings come from a poor performing sporting organisation, and developing Tim's philosophy from different football coats. Before we start this episode, join me on our next Prepare Like a Pro live coaching call this Friday. We have one for strength and conditioning coaches who may feel overworked, underpaid, and undervalued. So some business skills to help you with not only content creation, but also quality branding for your business. This live coaching call provides everything you really know as a strength and conditioning coach, make an impact in elite sport and in your life. It's 3 p.m. this Friday, the 26th of August. For more information, click the link in our show notes. Let's get into today's episode with Tim. Hope you enjoy. Welcome, Tim. Thanks for jumping on, mate. No worries. Thanks for having me. We'll, we'll get right into the start of your career. At what age did you discover you had a passion for sports physiotherapy and specifically working with athletes? I reckon for me, probably the common story I reckon with a lot of physios would say their first experience was you know getting injured yourself playing playing football and then you know going and seeing someone and then you know being thinking that might be a pretty cool sort of a, a job to do so that was that was probably that was probably the starting point for me I reckon yeah and was it a particular physio that you recall that once you once you had an injury and they helped you return to to play that you can recall or was it just the general it was a guy, a guy named Ed Hollis that I saw who, well, he must be sort of 20 years older than me, who, who ended up being my first boss when I actually did start physio, so uh, like once I'd got out of uni. So yeah, he was he was probably one of my biggest mentors really. So like, you know, he, he, he liked to say that when he first met me, I was wet behind the ears and everything that I might've done well, he takes full credit for it. So it's probably a fair, <laughs> probably a fair claim. Yeah. And what part of the industry you know, did you particularly grow to, or or what that attracted you to the? Role? I didn't. I didn't even know before I started uni. I didn't even know physios worked in hospitals. You know, like in different sort of wards and all that. So as far as I knew, physio was all about 
all about sport. So yeah, that that for me was the was the attraction from the from the get go. And when, once you did your your bachelor's of sports science, and you get exposed to different sides of physiotherapy, and obviously your passion was working with with athlete. Was that something that you grew to straight away, or did you I, like I some of the other sides? I thought when I finished my undergrad, right, that's it. I'm never studying kind of ever again. Yeah. I thought that was it. And I reckon probably sort of two years into it, I started getting a bit itchy and then kind of went and did a, a master's sports physio, which at the time was, you know, if you wanted to work in any of these kind of environments, you, it basically became a mandatory requirement anyway. But you sort of, every time I've done any study, not because it's been kind of forced on me, it's been sort of driven by some kind of burning desire to learn something new, do something different, mm-hmm. you know, push some kind of boundary. So, so I, so I did a master's, I think I finished physio in 2002, so I finished, yeah, physio in 2002 and then started a master's, I actually had a false start, uh, went up to uh, UQ to do a master's up there, sort of two years out. I'd only been up there for about three mm-hmm. months and... Then the Raiders rang up and said, oh, I did I want to kind of come home and start working in there. So I ended up having to put it off for a couple of years and then didn't finish that tool. I was at the Brumbies around sort of 2007. And then I thought, right, that's it. I'm never studying ever again. And then I started getting itchy sort of about four years later and fell into a PhD after that. So it's kind of just been one thing after the Every time I thought I was done with something, I just end up falling into something else. Yeah. And is that the thirst for learning? Is that just in terms of continual professional growth or, or is the purpose bigger than that like you mentioned trying to you know make an impact on the industry was it was it none, none of it was ever about having a piece of paper for sure even like the phd i kind of fell into that where it had, had a couple of surgeons sort of asking for uh formalized rehab protocols sort of relating mm-hmm. to acl and i didn't feel comfortable handing it to them unless i had some kind of validated sort of study behind it so started doing some things where i went okay I'll, you know validation sort of requires you know objective you know, data, which means you've got to have equipment to be able to do that. The only place that had that equipment was the university. And the only way the university was going to give you that equipment was if it was part of a, a, you know, formal sort of a research degree. So it kind of went from this small thing into like a, you know, massive sort of a project quite quickly. And then every everything since then has always been about trying to make your actual job better. Like, you know, nothing about the, the PhD was all clinically applied as in the outputs of it were all about trying to um, make my job a little bit easier rather than, you know, trying to force it in. So I've known, you know, friends of mine that still work in professional sport have, you, you know, asked me about things like PhDs and, and for quite a few of them, it sort of feels like it's something that they're logically just supposed to do rather than, mm. than having some kind of burning, nagging thing that's annoying them that they just want to try and sort of get on top of. And, and I reckon that's the wrong, that's the wrong reason to do it, to do a PhD. You, it sort of has to be born out of having a, a desire to learn something or, you know, remove a barrier because if you, it, it's a long process and if you don't have that sort of intrinsic motivation, then I reckon, I reckon it becomes a pretty hard sort of slog on, on the back end of it. Yeah. So it's a lot different to, I guess, how we approach the masters where, like you mentioned, if you want to work in the industry, it's potentially a box. You probably need a ticket at some stage. The yeah. PhD probably needs to be a little bit more intrinsic in your motivation and a real purpose driven on your topic. Is that how you look at it? And, and yeah, definitely like the PhD, like it probably went in that order in terms of the enjoyment. Like my physio degree, there were lots of aspects of it that I really didn't like. The master's was sort of better, but there were lots of things where the, the PhD in itself was probably the most enjoyable because you really got to, to choose everything that you wanted to do there. So, so if it, you know, if you thought it sucked, then it was really 
you're you're the only person to blame because you you really decide what the what the format of it is and the the areas that you're going to sort of chase. And I, and I really thought with a with a PhD, I thought, okay, by the end of it, I'm going to you know know everything. And and really, all it does is teach you to be quite critical of things. And you know, all you can really do now is you know, see holes in in kind of everything we do. So it sort of opens your eyes uh, in a big way, I reckon. And you mentioned orthopedic surgeons were reaching out for a, a framework. Was that for for them to be able to give to athletes? Was that for physiotherapists? It was really about yeah. It was really about trying to create some structure between like on the back end with with rehab. You know, obviously surgeons have their their, their area, and then rightly or wrongly, they probably get blamed for aspects of the of you know what happens sort of after the operation. So I think for a few of them, it was about trying to set some robust processes for physios that they work with just, you know, in general, that was about sort of trying to create some frameworks for them to kind of operate on so that then they, you know, had an ability to have some control over that rather than just sort of athlete going off into space and then, you know, having no idea what, you know, happened after that. Yeah, it makes sense because if they're judging the success of their intervention and they didn't have any control of post surgery then it makes it a bit difficult to measure it must be a work. yeah it must be a tough existence for them sometimes i reckon because you know a lot of their work happens obviously right at the right at the beginning and then you know then after the fact is whether it went well or not and so there's probably a, a massive sort of waiting game for them yep. definitely definitely and, and since then since we've you know i've had a lot more involvement in terms of that kind of post-injury benchmarking that they enjoy it as much as the the actual you know, clinicians who are sort of working on the front lines because for them, athletes sort of go off into never, never land and, you know, they may or may not have them or, you know, they come into the clinic and they see them and there's, there's only limited information they can get once they sort of see them. So for them, it's, it's the ability to have some surveillance as to, you know, what's, what's happening in that rehab space as well. Yeah. And it, it makes a lot of sense in terms of pitch ready and what and we'll, I'm sure go into more detail about pitch ready in, in a second, but it almost sounds like this was the, the planting of the seed with the work that you were doing with orthopedic surgeons and athletes at this time and then liaising with other people in the industry. It must have been a nice compliment for, for surgeons to be reaching out yourself for that framework. In terms of going into the PhD, how long did it take you to complete your PhD while working in sport? Started at the, a lot of the groundwork. I was still working in Super Rugby at the time, and so I think I started it formally in 2012, and then I, I submitted it in 2016 when I was working at Port Adelaide. So it's probably the sort of the best part of four years to get it yeah. to get it all it's done. Good it was good. My, my family was, was sort of toing and froing between Canberra and, and Adelaide. That so probably meant that I had a bit more bachelor time than I'd normally get. That meant that I could get it. I could get it done in a reasonably quick period of time. Was with in terms of ACL, obviously it's a unfortunately a, a long injury to, to rehab. Was there like massive changes that you found by going through and really looking at a specific injury over four years that thoroughly? It, it's grown so much. Like even the way that I do things now, you know, compared to probably three or four years ago, it's growing massively. Like it, it, back in 2012, for example, measurement of capacity was a was a, was a was a new thing. Like everything was very much time based. You know, when you're X months, you do Y, and and probably just exposure to rehab and having no adverse events probably dictated where you were in the rehab. As where what we sort of learned is that the the human body is an incredibly sort of clever piece of technology and it can bypass things and make up for inefficiencies. But the, the closer you get to the pointy end, a lot of those strategies start to, you know, can run out. So it was really sort of del- dipping down different areas and then trying to work out, you know, th- that cocktail that probably gives an athlete a, a best chance of success on the on the back end of it. 
And going back to influencers, you mentioned Ed Hollis. Were there some other mentors, if you like, or, or strong influencers over your career to help you to this point? Definitely, like early days, I was really lucky to work with some really good sports positions as well. Like Canberra, probably just via the AOS with a with a a bit of a fluke, really, where there were some really good sports positions. Guys by the name of David Hughes, who is the chief medical officer at the yeah Warren McDonald. Who is, who's now sort of the chief medical officer at, at Rugby Australia. And there's been a whole sort of, you know, they were probably provided a training program that a lot of the well-known surgeons sort of, uh, sorry, sports physicians around Australia basically passed through there. So it was this, this really good place where just by sort of osmosis, you, you could pick their brain, you could, you know, and they taught you to be really quite, you know, all about diagnosis and having a really good plan from the outset. Because if you, if you know where you're going, then the rest of it can sort of fall into place is where if you get the diagnosis wrong or then really everything subsequent to that can can fall away really, really quite quickly. So so those guys are, are guns at, you know, being really clear about a diagnosis and a plan. Ed, Ed taught me to, like in terms of communication and being having real clarity with the athlete, you know, it's not just about what you do and the technical knowledge, it's the, the way you communicate it and, you know, you're playing a mental game as much as anything else. So a, a lot of the time, so so was that probably the combination of, of of those guys really I think, and then the rest of it was you, you pick and choose sort of along the way. A lot of the F and C guys that I worked with were 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 really good, and you sort of glean little bits from there. So so I'd say like early days, you know, those guys probably were really big influences on me, and then up, subsequent to that, you learn along the way. The beauty of working in professional sport is you are exposed to people who are at the, the top of their, you know, at the top of their game and, and it's hard not to sort of learn some pretty cool things off them. Absolutely. Good segue for the yeah, practitioners and staff that are listening in that either want to have their first crack at elite sport. You mentioned earlier how while doing your masters, you actually were asked to come back and work at the Raiders. So it seemed that you got some good momentum early on in your career with um, working in elite sport. And what would you put that to? Was it a, a lot of it was just a lot of it was just word of mouth, really. Like so, with working with people who are you know working in that area, like is probably you know when you get asked you know how do I crack it in sport, it was probably for me was just put yourself in the environment, you know, don't say no to anything, and it really sort of just grew grew from there. And you've worked in different codes as well. Like, is that through building a strong network base of people working in different sports? Was that deliberate early on, or that's just sort of naturally progressed? I think it was a bit of both, to be honest. Like I, I really wanted to do sort of different things. So, you know, the, the Raiders just, just sort of happened. Same thing. I went over to the UK. I was, I was going to work over at Sale Sharks and I wasn't there. I was supposed to be there for two years. And not long after getting there, the Brumbies rang up and said, oh, same thing. Do you want to come home? So it feels like every time I leave Canberra, I just get sucked back like a yeah. in, in, into the, into the vortex. But again, that was a sort of an organic thing. And then, then everything after that was sort of just about chasing opportunity or new, you know, new things sort of as it went, you know, the AFL was the same thing. It was, and, and it, it, in, in hindsight, it probably wasn't the reason that I did it, but in hindsight, it's been really good because you can see the commonalities between sort of different sports and, and each of them has their own sort of subtle cultural thing from the SC world and from the rehab space. They all have their sort of, their, their ways of doing things and, in certain situations, I reckon, you know, evolution is that, that that's a good thing. But then certain injuries, the way other codes tended to look after it, like the rugby codes, for example, have a have a really strong emphasis on strength, for example. So if you get a lot of tendon-based injuries or some of these kind of overuse ones, you know, the way they do things, I think, is is, is really good. So 
not just having just a you know in the AFL world, obviously is is very much about running based models and trying to get everyone you know get their meterage up as quickly as possible. So it was sort of the 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 cross pollination of the two for me was yeah. was really good. And yeah, looking into your work now, like you mentioned, a more strength based sort of rugby model compared to the the running based, would that be like obviously a lot of different factors that you take into account in which one that you're going to go with, but tending to such a more soft tissue to type of athlete, their physical sort of like when you do your, your batteries of tests and their sort of deficits, talk, talk us through your thought process and when you'll yeah, pull from different experiences. I, I think it's more like, especially what I do now is it just gives you an awareness of probably the scope of, you know, the checklist of things that, that you know, probably help give you know, an athlete a better chance of success, particularly when they're sort of coming back from an injury. So so very much the the pitch ready stuff that I have now is is really about there is that checklist and you're trying to have some something to hang your hat on as to where the athlete fits in that space as a way of being able to explain you know priority areas to to, to go at or what they might do with certain things. For example, you know we talk about ankle stiffness where you know positions of foot contact you know to try and uh, which create can create stress or or not and. On the back end of it, you're trying to work out is it a capacity thing? Does the athlete just need more oomph in the leg versus is it a skill preference? Is it, you know, it's just something that they've always done and will do. And it's really about being targeted, not making assumptions. So just doing calf strength in someone who has a, you know, that, that's their skill preference. You're really not going to make any relevant changes at all. And then being realistic about that as well, because skill, skill changes, you know, can be quite quite a period of time to change and if you're leaving yourself you know the whole concept of return to sport i really don't like because especially on the back end of it where when you start talking about some of these skill preferences which especially with atl it's a motor control issue often as much as anything else and if you're leaving in that rehab space where the body's become very good at sort of problem solving around it and protecting itself if Mm. those things are allowed to stay in there till the, till the back end of it, then trying to do something about that on the back end is, is really, really tough when they're told the coach they're going to be three weeks away or something like that. So it's, it, it's like watching a bus crash sometimes. So yeah. from my point of view, it's a lot of, you know, intervene, intervene, you know, be definitive and, and do it nice and early, particularly with the skill component. So that way you've got as, as much time to, to do it. Yeah. And now, yeah, looking at your website, there's obviously a lot of uh, kinematics involved in your, in your testing. Uh, is that where you'll, in terms of the the skill aspect of of moving and and running, you'll give that they they go through obviously their objective markers, but also how are they moving with change of direction at at high speed, and then you might give them some drills and some things that they need to do from a motor learning point of view, yeah. as well as their rehab or as part yeah, of their rehab. That's right. We, we, I sort of use like two analogies with this. You've got the you know the racing car team, so you've got the car and you've got the driver, and and the car is. You know, measure the capacity, so ability for the leg to absorb and produce force. And you've got the racing car driver, which is the ability to, under pressure, for the, the body to execute things in a way that is, you know, safe rather than likely to sort of cause problems. So really it's about, you know, the, the, the kinematic stuff and the biomechanics. I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a classic sort of coming from a biomechanic stream. It was really just born out of wanting to remove biases, you know, because we think we see things, you know, especially when you start talking about skill acquisition, but you'd be surprised how your biases can sort of play out and can mislead you a little bit. So it's really about trying to have a, have a robust, robust process around that. And, and the tech, you know, technology evolves sort of all the time. And and really for me, I'll pick and choose based on things that are out there. So 
you know, not about pushing a particular piece of equipment or technology. It's really the ones that just remove barriers on the on the back end of it, just to, to help, you know, practical implication when you're looking after an athlete. Hey there, hope you're enjoying this episode with Tim McGrath. We're just going to take a quick break to hear a snippet from our interview with Nick Popovich. So that situation, he hands you the whiteboard marker pen and he says, draw up your, your intentions. <laughs> like, were you a bit nervous or did you just dive straight in and just get going with it? Yeah, I was nervous, yeah. but I backed myself. I just said, look, this is my only chance. I'm in front of uh, what was – he was then the assistant coach at the Boomers, I believe, and um, head coach of the Sydney Kings. And I thought, back yourself. So be yeah, confident, you know. Yeah, yeah, you know, you can't – you can't be fearful in those situations. You've got to go for it. You've got to really grab it, and, and I did. And uh, the nerves quickly went as discussion built up, you know, questions. And you go, okay, well, that's a good question, and I see where you're coming from, but this is what I believe, or this is what research shows at the time, and uh, this is how I would approach it. And, and then all of a sudden, you're in a, a conversation like you and I are, about yeah. a topic area, you're not in an interview and, and not in a, you know, a formal sort of uh, setting where you're trying to land a job. To hear more from Nick Bovich, make sure to scroll to episode 63 on the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Now back to the rest of the episode with Tim McGrath. Hope you enjoy. For the coaches listening in that deal with rehab, what would be an example of a test, a common result that you see? in terms of the mechanics and then a prescription that you'd, you'd give them in terms of motor learning and, and yeah, improving their, their skill. can be a bit of a dark art in terms of the, the, the skill act side of things, but it, but it's really about, you know, especially when we start talking about ATLs, it's, it's roughly about 40 milliseconds from ground contact. So, so it's like that. So really we hone in on under pressure, someone changing direction at high speed and really just that instant of foot contact, you know, snapshots of where, you know, where the body is in space. So, so a common a common hangover that probably stays there is uh, when someone goes in a change of direction. If they're going to step off their right leg, they'll they'll typically try and do something to use the the good leg as much as humanly possible. So o- often that looks like something like a crossover cut where they detail quite heavily on the inside leg and then kind of push through, and uh, which is fine in the you know in that example where their body made a decision and it's going to go off to that way. The problems can happen where that they have to change their mind and they have to sort of shift their momentum to go onto the outside, which then makes them sort of reach out really wide to generate that horizontal force, straight leg, and everything then just becomes like a like a powder keg where knee is really stiff and straight. If they plonk on their heels, so nothing is absorbed at the ankle, then you know it doesn't take many layers of sort of chaos really to kind of bring it undone. So. So when we do the when we do all the benchmarking, it's not about trying to absolutely replicate a football scenario. It's trying to have it sterile enough that you can compare apples to apples, but then also push elements that are you know that are pretty close to the back end of it, which is high speed, unanticipated change of direction, it, just so you can make sense of it. But but also there has to be some you know a, a reasonably small stepping off point to, to you know their their sport kind of fit. Perfect, mate. Well well said. That's a a great segue for introducing Pitch Ready. No doubt the listeners probably are already aware, but for those that aren't, we've mentioned in terms of the creation from it came on from your, your PhD and working closely with, with surgeons and physios and providing a framework. But yeah, talk us through the thinking behind creating it and currently your role within the, the company. So it was really like I'm saying, PhD was okay, you tried lots 
the things and it was it was really just trial and error at the end of the day and then it evolved you know like I said early days it was very much about capacity and we thought the capacity was a you know going to solve all our problems in terms of people who were who were risky for re-injury but then realized that really that wasn't addressing quite a large component of, of that rehab space you know if, if that if all it was was just to make someone big and powerful we just turn them into someone that could deadlift 300 or something like that and then no one would ever get hurt again so yep. there's an element of of board obviously that revolves around skill and and really it was just about trying to be objective about trying to trying to quantify that yeah and like i said it, it does it, it continues to evolve all the time so the thing the way that we sort of do things now versus three years ago is banning sort of sort of all the time so it's good because it keeps it's motivating because you never sort of feel like you're you're, you're there and it's all sorted and you know nothing else is nothing else is needed so so my my role now really is that probably that bridging between, you know, I'm, I'm a clinician first and then a sort of a, a scientist or a nerd sort of second. So it's really just about trying to, like I went and did a, a computer science degree after the PhD because I really needed to be able, you know, these things pump out massive volumes of data. And I was in meetings with some pretty smart sort of computer scientists. The, the language that they talk versus what we as clinicians talk, you know, what do our eyes want to see and what, you know, but bringing it down to a, a black and white line of code that then, you know, c- can define what you're sort of trying to look at. There's a bit of an art to that. So so really for me now, it being the, the bridging between the technology, understanding the data, and then really trying to put it into to clinical practice because, you know, c- capturing data is, is brilliant and lots of people sort of do it. But at the end, it has to be brought down to a, you know, a, a fairly simple, meaningful sort of output. Otherwise, there's really no point. And and I reckon that's the trap for young players is they capture all sorts of things, really don't have a massive understanding as to what the output of it is going to be. And, you know, the implementation of it then, therefore, is is really, you know, often not that not that great. It's where you see people who've been around for a long time, they have a really clear idea of what they want. They don't want to waste their time. And everything that they tend to capture really has a, has a meaningful sort of output for them. Otherwise, they don't want to waste their time. And yeah, you, you mentioned doing some further research in data science for those that have spent a fair bit of time with you know experiencing coaching and you know experience with their coaching eye. And you mentioned how even the, the best coaches potentially there's going to be obviously bits that are missed with bias. With the data science side of things, how much time and energy does it take to build up your ability to be able to look at a report and, and quickly analyze and and put it into practice? I don't like the comparison, but it's the only one that makes sense to me. It's almost it's a little bit like once you pull it all together, it's a little bit like an MRI where you're, you know, the art that comes sort of on the, on the back end of it. So everything that we, we built up a, we built up a normative database sort of many years. And then really every, the, the standard deviation or, you know, the variability in the data from a capacity point of view is massive compared into if they're a professional basketballer versus a soccer player versus AFLW versus, you know, all that sort of stuff. So the, the variability in that is quite tight, so you have to really know your population. I- interestingly, on the, the the skill act side of it, you know, positions that stress the body is really much narrower. And and if you think about it, you know, the way that we test someone's knee, for example, to see if they busted their ACL, is really quite consistent across teenagers, adults, you know, tall, short, you know, whatever. And it so really sort of probably highlights that the, you know the positions that stress the body are quite you know quite consistent across lots of different populations. The amount of oomph that someone has in their leg is, you know, there is quite varied. So you really have to know the, the strengths and weaknesses of the of the information you're sort of capturing. And for the for the athletes are listening, or maybe parents of, of athletes that are going through rehabilitation, is it just ACL injuries that Pitch Ready helps with? 
Yeah. No, it's lower limb. So, and the, the good thing about things like ACL, which is where it was sort of born out of the first place, was it is a long journey and it really does delve with, you know, the, the, the foot and ankle has implications for the knee, the hip and groin has implications for the knee. So, you know, you'll see lots of people, for, for example, do an ACL and then go on to have hip and groin issues because the mechanics of what they do from a compensatory point of view is, is you know, there's a lot of commonality through there. So the manage the way that I manage the mechanics of, you know, change of direction with someone with hip and groin is there's a lot of commonality with, with the knee. Mm-hmm. Post-Achilles rupture, chronic calf issues, you know, overuse syndromes, Achilles issues, tibial stress, like a lot of those sorts of things. Really, when you start looking at a lot of this is, especially when you start talking about compensatory patterns is, for lots of years, we're just focused on making that bit of tissue really quite strong and robust. But when you start looking about at this stuff, you realize that it's about trying to get the load shared across multiple sort of body regions. So someone has hip and groin issues, you can get the groin unit really quite strong. But if you if they're changing direction really wide of their center of mass because they're doing something like that crossover cut thing we were talking about, then that that puts the groin at a really out of range position. So if you can get them sort of in tighter where they have good tissue tolerance and they can also share the load through lateral hip and all those sorts of things, then that's the path of least resistance because you're sort of coming at it from multiple angles rather than just trying to get it really strong and hoping that that's you know all that all that's really needed. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Thank you. And for, yeah, for those listening that are interested, we'll add in all the link in the show note. Going back to your career, mate, what, what's a highlight? And there might be a couple of highlights that you're really proud of today. I reckon that's a, it's a hard question to answer because like, there's lots of things that happen sort of a, along the way. Like there's things like being involved in, you know, super rugby, you get to travel over to South Africa, you know, Port Adelaide, they had showdown. Some of those sort of games where there's Massive crowd, you know, in South Africa, there'd be all these staff is sort of baying for your blood, even as the, as the physio getting hurled abuse at. So there's just these different environments that you, you don't get exposed to if you're just working in Australia kind of thing. So, so that was, you know, that's cool. What I do now, I really, really like because it really often you're dealing with people who are coming back from long-term injury and they've hit barriers in their rehab and they're sort of looking to you to try and sort of help kick things along a little bit. And I've had some ones that have had a, a really shocking run and then, you know, people have had done four knees or something and, you know, still three, four years later, once they, they're now back playing. So life changing. Yeah. yeah. So, so you just, you feel like it, you have an ability to potentially sort of help people in a really sort of a, a shit time. And, you know, that's, that's really quite satisfying as well because it, you know, it's, helping people, which is probably why I wanted to get into physio in the first place, is you were trying to be the good guy rather than the rather than the bad guy. So yeah, a lot of those things along the way, yeah, definitely some highlights for me. Yeah, absolutely, mate. No, great work. And on the, well, not necessarily the flip side, but from a growth point of view, professionally, what have been some significant challenges that you've faced and what have you learned from them? I think like the programs that I've been involved in where they actually haven't had good success probably are the ones that you learn the most from because if you're in a team and and everyone's winning, then no one really asks too many questions. And as, as we're the ones where things haven't really gone to plan, then people are asking questions. You know, most time they do a review in a football club is because the results haven't been what they wanted and, and everyone's sort of scurrying around. So it, it, a lot of those things made you really think quite critically about your process. And, and to, as you got experience, you were really trying to think of those things in, in advance. You know, what can go wrong here? How can I, how can I show evidence being mitigated or we've, you know, we've tried to control that, you know, all these different things. So really probably the, 
the programs that really weren't going well were probably the ones that probably sharp me up a little bit in terms of how I tend to operate. And then really these days, it's really the limitation of technology where, especially when you start talking about, you know, biomechanics and cap motion capture and those sorts of things, there's the spectrum between things that are potentially a bit more robust and drilled out, you know, ability to be quite accurate and how they can be a bit slower and cumbersome to sort of get versus things which are quick and easy, but then the accuracy of it can sort of dive off. So, so really you're sort of playing in that spectrum where don't overcomplicate it if you don't need to, but then also don't try and make assumptions on about where someone's at in their rehab based off kind of limited information. So, so again, it's, the lessons there have been good in the sense of, like I said, having, having good, good knowledge of the data, what are the strengths, what are the weaknesses and having a, a you know, a self-awareness of that. You mentioned early on with a couple of influences with Dave and, and Warren, the importance of a thorough diagnosis. Working in elite sport, sometimes time can be challenging. What about with some of the lower limb injuries that are more significant and athletes facing a long period of time? What would be a consistent time frame that you would need to go through your battery of tests to, to be able to have all the information that you need? To feel so it depends on the stage. Yeah, particularly with what I do now, pitch ready stuff. It, it probably depends on the on the stage of it. So and and really the the numbers involved. So we do whole squads, for example, within a day, but it's really like a Formula One pit crew. So you've got you know a person on each sort of job. As where if, if you're just working one on one with an athlete, then really it becomes a bit more hierarchy. You know, I'll, I'll sort of take on a lot of the the flow of the you know, the prep and the, the actual cap calibration and the capture and then the things that sort of come after that. So so a typical somewhere around sort of an hour, hour and a half, really, to go through it all and then sort of go away and synthesize it all. And then normally you sit down with the with the staff afterwards or the, you know, if it's, if it's more community level, you'll sit down with the physio that, you know, or the rehab coach that's, in, that, you know, responsible for looking after that person. And, and like I said, it's really that conduit between the cold face of people who are looking after it and, and the technology and then try and give them try and give them some, hopefully some usable, you know, action items to kind of address. Yep. And for when a whole squad comes in and you're consulting with sporting organizations, how, how does that look? What, what are you sort of looking at? What are some common questions or problems? That you it was born, yeah, it was born very much out of the pre, the, sorry, the post-injury stuff where you, you know, you're talking to, talking to athletes and to the staff and you go, you know, this is, you know, what you're doing here is really historically it doesn't hold bode well in the rehab space. And I said, well, I, I think I used to do that beforehand. So that's where the challenges of things like symmetry have come into it, where we're assuming that the good leg is the good leg and all of that sort of stuff is, you know, it's arguably about make someone better than what they were. So so mm-hmm. a lot of this squad-based stuff is really a similar process, but it's really theme-based where you're sort of looking at all those components, you know, capacity, jump quality, change of direction, you know, body positioning with, you know, jumping and a lot of those sorts of movements and then really trying to give them, you know, we, we talk about FIFA 11, for example, like a injury prevention sort of programs. It doesn't in any way deal with dose response. So it does, you know, does the athlete actually respond to it and really doesn't, you know, you think in sport, you have heaps of time to deal with, you know, look after someone, but when you get into it, you actually really don't. So previous injury is a, is a really strong predictor of future injury. So really the, the whole process is about trying to give you know, people look, working on the cold face, things that are, you know, narrow the spectrum down. So rather than trying to go for a feed for 11 style program where they just try to hit, you know, throw as many sort of darts as possible and hope something hits is things where they're actually in a good space, probably deprioritize that slightly. Things that are important and, you know, they're not, 
in, in as close to a normal space compared to that population, really try and prioritize those. So it's really about trying to, yeah, it's trying to be as proactive as possible and, and narrowing the focus as much as possible. And it sounds like there's some assistance there with prescription of, of program. Is that through consulting with yourself or, or is that another? Yeah, it's really program? like, again, when, especially when you start working at the, it, it's a, it can be a little bit harder when you're working recreationally because you get a, a very sort of level of experience. But when you're working on the, on the pointy end in professional sport, there's people who are pretty good operators in their own right. So, so those ones, it's very much, there's many roads that sort of lead to Rome and how one one operator will deal with that particular theme versus another one, I I think is is up for debate. So so really it's theme based, and and I'll happily tell people what things that have worked for me historically. But by no means is it, is it didactic, and it has to be done that way because there are plenty of ways of attacking the same problem for sure. And you mentioned the common one is the inside leg crossing over. What are some sort of common cues or drills that you would bring in to try and work on that? Yeah, like we, we try and uh, like, I feel like I've failed in, in the rehab if someone is doing that really late in the, in, you know, just in a fairly unconstrained task, they are doing that where they're offloading. So really it's early days, you know, things just lane changes, you know, linear running. We do heaps of sort of banded, perturbator drills, water bag drills, all designed to sort of try and give them a a sense of load and trying to tuck their foot under. And there is some sort of coaching that goes with that, like giving giving athletes feedback. But the 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 skill there is to not overwhelm them. It's a bit like a people that have played golf before. Or if if the coach, you know, trying to work on your swing and if they give you fifty cues and by the end of it you can't even hit the golf ball anymore. So it's it's really about don't throw too many things at them at once. You know, if there's ten things there, just work on one, get good at that. So just pick the most important one to start off with. And then sort of work the way through that, which is where like the skill aspect of it is you need time to be able to do that. So, so rehab traditionally was very sort of hierarchical. We, you know, get them strong first, then we'd start running, then we'd start, you know, sort of agility, you know, sport specific type progression as where now I tend to do it really quite horizontally where I have it, you know, I've got each of those things going sort of concurrently and, you know, I try and get them in as, as early as possible because you, you just want as much time. To sort of try and chase those things as, and not leave it till the till the very end. And is it as simple for the coaches listening in as, when drip feeding in that horizontal approach with drills? If they're using the crossover step drill, is potentially too advanced for them, so just scale it down to where they feel confident to be able to do it. Yeah, and and, and generally like the, the place of the place of some of those isolated or you know gym type drills is can be useful just because it narrows the narrows the drill right down so that you're just trying to teach them what that is supposed to feel like and then you know then start layering in over the top so you know when you're doing rehab you know rehab running i reckon a lot of people might just drive past and look at it and say uh how good his job all he's doing is just playing games with someone like a you know like some kind of school holiday program but the the reality is that, is that you're you're trying to bridge the gap as much as possible with basically what they have to go back to and there's this process of sort of of getting in there so that, you know, you're trying to make it like it is those progressions and regressions and it's all based on you know, competency-based when they can do one thing, go bring it up a notch, go up a notch until eventually, you know, there's chaos, you know, and intensity going at the same time and that's, you know, that's what sport is at the end of the day. Yep. And comparing that vertical to the horizontal approach, when you see that crossover step late in rehab, how you mentioned that can be a bit of a red flag that the process hasn't gone quite where you would have liked it. Would that 
athlete typically test well in, in the capacity test like you mentioned, like your Nord board? They, they can do, yeah. They, they definitely can do. And, and that's where it doesn't happen so much now, but early days, yeah, I used to get athletes where they were, you know, literally at the end and the club was sort of looking for a kickbox to sort of send them back and those things could could happen and it was, yeah it was, it was not good because you just knew that doing something about that was really going to be quite tough when you're right at the at the pointy end so yeah it, it, that that can be a I, I personally i feel like i've failed if a lot of those things are allowed so so far down the down the track it's something you want to chase a lot earlier yeah and in your yeah personal preference then would you rather see Beat you know, sport organizations and, and rehab coaches come to pitch earlier on in the rehab and then so you've got guidance. Yeah, the, the, just the at the, the end rough, for a confidence booster. Yeah, like I mean, obviously a lot of your capacity based things you, you, you do reasonably early. So if it's a if it's a knee reconstruction, for example, you know, once they've gone into that sort of mid to end volume phase is when you'd start doing a lot of that capacity based you know, you know, stuff, which is really just about, you know, can the legs start to absorb and produce force? And then a lot of the skill aspect of it is probably the most useful time is when they're changing direction around sort of 70% and getting to the point where your eyes can't obviously sort of pull things to pieces and you're really starting to think about, okay, where am I going to go for that next six weeks? That That's probably the most useful time, I reckon. And, you know, on the back end of it, it can be good to get evidence of normality because, you know, that, that historically is, you know, people who are within a normal range compared to the the population you're dealing with is, you know, historically, you know, one of the better insurance policies you're, you're probably going to get. So that's reassuring to an athlete. But in terms of the implementation of it, really earlier is, is a lot better because it just gives you time to sort of go chasing, you know, chasing things. Makes a lot of sense. Oh, we'll move into the, the get to know Tim section, mate, the personal side of the, the questions, less technical. So favorite inspirational quote or, or life motto? Got one? Maybe you always end up where you're supposed to be. I like it. So I've seen plenty of people sort of try and fluff their way in in teams and, you know, be a bit sneaky about the way they do things, but they don't tend to last very long. So I'm I'm a firm believer in you always end up where you're supposed to be. Yeah, that's a good one. And what about in your work life? Do you have pet peeves, anything that buys you out? Especially around the workplace, I'm a real real clean freak, I reckon. So I like maybe the OCD planning out or something like that. So staff that we work with, I'm always sort of busting their chops about, you know, keeping the gym tidy and, and those sorts of things. So they're, I'm forever, forever riding them like a, like a bike like that. Yep. So maybe that's, that's my number one, I'd say. And what about favorite way to spend your day off, mate? Do you get many? I've got, I've got kids that are sort of varying from ages in, you know, nine, 13. So I think this afternoon I'm helping my oldest with her algebra. So the, the spare time is attempting to try and have do some things with the family, but yeah, if I can, I you know I, I still enjoy you know going for a going for a wave or you know going to the gym and doing those sorts of things. So no real structured sport these days. It's just sneak out and do things when you can. Yeah, well, thank you so much for for jumping on, mate, and, and sharing with us your experiences and both in research as as well as in in the clinic and and getting your hands dirty with helping athletes. Like you mentioned, some some were coming back after four knee recos, so it's a huge impact you're making on the industry not only with the athletes, but also with staff and sporting organizations as well, mate. For those that want to get in contact, where's the best place to to follow you or, or DM you? Uh, or so, the, yeah, so, so I've, I'm not a, not a massive social media sort of warrior, but I, but I do have all have all of those. So usually I, I can get contact that or the, the Pitchery website or the Elite Rehab website. There's admin contacts there and, yeah, usually that kind of finds, finds its way. 
Yeah, awesome. We'll add them all in the show show notes, guys, for, for those listening in. Maybe you're driving in the podcast, so you can do that at the end if you drive. But thanks again, mate. It, what's on the horizon? You've got plenty of moving parts, it sounds like. What's on the horizon for 2002? Uh, off to the States. The borders, are, borders are starting to open up again. It's good. So doing some stuff over over in the States with the NBA NBA franchise. So that's oh, fantastic. Cool. Yeah. That's the beauty these days is I'm get lots of lots of variety. So it's good good simulation. So how does that work if you're if you're not at your clinic or with access to your equipment? Do they have do you use a local university for sporting organizations? So I'm taking taking stuff over there. The idea is to try and sort of help them, yeah, try and help them get their own sort of solution set up. And so I'll, I'll take some gear over. So I look like Queen Victoria sort of traveling over at the moment. <laughs> but yeah, hopefully then in the end I'll I'm try and make myself as redundant as humanly possible. Yeah, well, thanks again, mate. Any final words or anything that we missed that you'd like to mention? No, I think yeah, probably everyone's sick of my voice by now. Very good. Well, thanks again, mate. And for those that are tuned in, if you tune in late, make sure to watch the start of the episode. This will live on our YouTube channel. And if you want to listen to the podcast, we'll release it next week. Our next Prepare Like a Pro live chat show will be with Brendan Eagleston, which is he's the rehab coach at Melbourne Football Club. So you can join us. That's this Wednesday at 8 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian of the Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, I suppose it is... Um... It'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I yep. often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then game changes, yeah, game changes whatever that might be. And look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and, you know, and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete for. Yeah. Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Here's an example with academy member Rama Davies, the strength conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks. Welcome Rama to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was, uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was, you spoke quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat. Um, and I was wondering, what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did um, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm, yeah, good question. 
Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it, yeah, certainly, yeah, has been massive for me now and, and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is, is gratitude. I spend a lot of my time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts, doing a, a journal every day just to, be, to say what I'm grateful for, sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, might be whatever as an SNC coach, you know, if something's you're having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just, yeah, opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's that's been huge. Um, I think I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm-hmm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then and, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things and um, if I kind of didn't have that fear, fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and, yeah. and yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review, or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.